Good morning. My name is Christy Skimming. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Genesis. We are in a sermon series called Safe and Holy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Genesis 4, 1 through 12 from the English Standard Version. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Are you all well? Any of you sick? No? I've been a total um, sort of... Neanderthal about this, and I've been um, not heeding the warnings. And uh, I'm not sick yet, but um, I bought water for my family, and then I just am choosing to not drink it for myself. So uh, enjoy your last sermon with Peter today. (laughs) I'm foolish in that way. I'm I'm trying to prove nothing to nobody here. All right, we are uh, in a series called Safe and Holy, as Christy said, and today's sermon, uh, the title is Holy, and this will be Holy Part 1. We'll do Part 2 next week, and uh, we'll go uh, from there. What we've been saying in the series is that Jesus is both safe and holy, that simultaneously he is somehow able to uh, embody both safe and holy, and Alongside that, we've been saying that uh, human beings, by our very nature and bent, we tend to be either, either safe or holy. You know, and if we are safe, then we're probably not holy. And if we are holy, we don't, we're not experienced as safe by other people. And we see this played out in sort of a focused way in the Christian church. Uh, if you did a poll of America on what they think about the church, many would say that the church is maybe holy, but it's not a safe place. They wouldn't go there. They won't bring their friends there. If they're going through a sensitive or difficult time, they sort of avoid the church. Uh, it's a complicated place, and it's reactive, and people 
are, are just weird and funky about things. And so it's not safe. Or if it is safe, you know, it's not actually helpful. It's sort of a social club, and it's just a, a mirror, a reflection of the culture that already surrounds them anyway. So they don't need to go to church to receive help because it's the same place as everywhere else. And so uh, we see this played out in church. And uh, my hope for our church is that we can not be safe or holy, but be a safe and holy place. Actually, I think if you asked Americans what they thought about the American church, many would say it's not safe, but it's not holy either. Uh, And that's uh, uh, probably... A sad truth. Jesus, on the other hand, was amazing at being this person that was able to be both safe and holy. And one of the ways we know this, uh, gave evidence to this, is the broad spectrum of people that he was able to draw. You know, uh, there is the Jews, the Gentiles, the sick, the healthy, the young, the old, men, women, They all came to Jesus, sometimes by day, sometimes by night. They flocked to him. They were drawn to him. And I think it's because he was safe and holy. Now, some would say, no, no, it's not any of those things. It's because he did miracles, because he healed people. He did spectacular things. And I would actually uh, come back and say, actually, his ability to heal was a function of his holiness, that it was his holiness that was penetrating those who were sick. And let me tell you, if somebody had the gift of healing, but they were not safe, people would not come. And so I think that Jesus was really both a safe and holy person. And I think about Jesus sometimes and who he was. I come back to the person of who he was, and I think about the ways that he was so poised, and yet so able to embrace and connect to those around him, the power that emanated from him, the holiness that emanated from him, but it wasn't repulsive, but rather it was gathering. And I think about this person, and it just makes me emotionally want to just fall at his feet. I just, I'm tired of bearing the weight of my own life by my own incompetent self. And I just want to give myself over to this man who did all things well. And I want to worship him and I want to release the reins over to him. And I think that reaction is the reaction we have to things that are both safe and holy. It feels So good, it feels sometimes too good to be true. Can anything really be both safe and holy? Uh, Today, we want to talk about holiness. The phrase I want us to sort of circle around a little bit is the phrase, be holy for I am holy. This is what uh, God said of himself. Peter quotes this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy for I am holy. Now, this word holy has gotten a bad rep in our society. The word holy kind of uh, conjures up in my mind pictures of somebody who's moral or somebody who's pious and somebody who's sort of self-righteous, somebody around whom I would feel unsafe. 
I would keep my mouth closed, make sure nothing leaked out. There was nothing that they can know about me or say about me. I would feel self-conscious about my uh, character and about my personality. This is the way holy affects me. I see a little bit of this when people find out I'm a pastor. Oops, sorry, pastor. Oops, I didn't mean to say that. Sorry, I was being myself. This is sort of the experience I have, and I'm not even holy. They just think I'm supposed to be holy. They think they're supposed to be self-conscious. But Jesus, he was actually holy, but not in the same way that people think I'm supposed to be holy. I think in reality, when somebody is truly, genuinely holy, it has the effect of drawing people out. We get to experience the true colors of people. And that's what we see in Jesus' ministry. Okay, uh, Here's a story. Have you ever felt pressure? Yeah, you felt pressure. That's pretty general. You can fit that category. Have you ever led something and you felt pressure while you were leading something? Like maybe in your work or maybe in a relationship or... Uh, maybe with your kids, or maybe you were leading uh, a ministry at the church. You've led something, you've made decisions on behalf of other people, right? You feel the pressure. Now, here's a question. Can you do your job if you're open to every opinion, whim, and wish that are coming your way? Can you do your job? Can you maintain your sanity? Will you succeed or will you implode? See, there's this pressure all around us all the time. We feel it kind of acutely when we are leading something because, uh, you know, other people's lives are sort of in our hands in that limited way. And people let us know that. They have opinions. They care. And they're shooting your way. And it doesn't matter the content of those opinions. But when it comes at you, you feel it as pressure. And now all of a sudden you have this job to do, but then you have this other job of managing people. And managing expectations and managing opinions. So it's the baker who's great at baking. And then they have to now open up a bakery. And then all of a sudden it's a business. Right? So I had an experience, uh, something, uh, a small version of this. Uh, I, one of the things I pride myself in, and nobody actually knows this. Uh, maybe my wife does. Uh, but I'm kind of smug about it. I am great at ordering food at restaurants. And you, you all don't maybe realize this on a conscious level, but there's a lot of pressure when you're trying to order at a restaurant because you don't eat out often. It's costing you money. It's an opportunity to eat something delicious that you didn't cook for yourself. It's a change from the norm, right? And there's serv- there are servants surrounding you. Like they're there available for you at your beck and call. It's an opportunity, i.e. high pressure scenario. Right? And so let me tell you, a lot of people don't order well. And I have, I have realized this a long time ago. And I've tried to sort of make it an explicit discipline to order well. I will never cave in to the to the volume of the menu. Sometimes it's overwhelming and you get to a point when like halfway through reading the menu, you say, I just want to make a decision now. You don't even know what you want anymore. 
right? And so you just order something. And then on top of that, there's the pressure of what everybody else is getting. It's like, oh, shoot, I like that too. And I want some, oh, pressure. And then on top of all that, you know what you have? You have the waiter or waitress. Let me tell you. They know what they're doing. They have a job to do, and it's to get you to order the most profitable items. There are whole websites devoted to helping you beat the system at restaurants. True story. Do you know which wine you're supposed to order? The second cheapest wine. That's the best bang for your buck. That's what the analysts say. There's a whole science to this. You didn't know, right? But then you have this person you feel pressure to please especially if they're likable, and then you start wanting to please them. All of your life weaknesses and character flaws are coming to the surface. You're literally laying it down on the table. And, hi, can I get you something to drink? Well, I was going to just order water, but you're so nice, and you probably want me to order a beverage. So, And I don't want to drink aspartame, but I'll have a Diet Coke. Maybe if you <laughs> throw a slice of lime in it, then it nature, I don't know, makes it better. So I had that exact scenario happen two weeks ago. And I'm really good about this. I have a system for how I look at the menu and thinking about the menu before I get there and knowing, you know, all that. And I usually ask the waiter what they want, so get their stuff out of the way. And not, not what people order, but what do you like? Put, put their neck on the line. Put their tip on the line, right? And so this whole thing is happening, happens in my brain all the time. But two weeks ago, I completely caved. This waiter was extra charming, extra charismatic. And I've been on this no like artificial sweetener sugar thing, but I ended up ordering a Diet Coke. I did not want to. I did not mean to. And I felt bad about it afterwards. (laughs) And then I ended up ordering a dish that I didn't want. But it was like the guy sold me on fries. I forget what the extra was, but it was like, ah, I don't feel good. And I was just kind of defeated the whole meal. Just I just felt like a loser. Now, you probably won't because you're not playing this game and you're not crazy like I am. But there's pressure out there. It's a real, real world out there, folks. And if you don't navigate it well, it's going to get you. Whether you find yourself ordering a Diet Coke or yelling at your kids or making a bad decision at work or getting into a falling out situation with somebody, it doesn't take much for our integrity to be compromised. And before long, the outside is getting in on the inside. And we don't like ourselves very much for it. We just experienced this as a, as a community, didn't we, this week? You think your body's so strong. You think you're all just, you're all tight and bound up and packaged with a bow on it. And all of a sudden, there's one little bacteria in our water supply. And ah, everybody's falling apart. It's amazing how fragile we actually are. Really, truly. What is the value in this high-pressure world, society, of being able to be your true self? To be the ship that's behind, this, behind me on the screen here. And to not be dictated by the waves and the wind, or even the whim of the crew. But to be the captain of the ship. And to have orders. And to set sail for a destination, and get there. What does it take to do that? To say, check, 
life done well. Do you want to live life like that? I do. Is it easy? It's not. Not even in a restaurant. Here's a quote that I used a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I really like this quote, and I had searched again last night for the source of this quote, and the source, the author, still does not exist. Okay? An entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. Just remember, storms exist. Water is a thing. It's got force. It has its way. But you don't have to sink. You don't have to be tossed to and fro. You don't have to lose sight of true north. It doesn't have to happen. But it will happen if water gets inside. And the pressure, the water pressure is all around us. This is what we call life. I have a word for relationships. You know what it is? Complications. It's what it is. Right after, hello, nice to meet you. How are you? You know what's beyond that? Complications. It's like just for five seconds, you have this beautifully, you know, like beautifully spun spool of yarn. And then second number six, it's like, ah, all tangled up. And the duration of your relationship is just untangling that. I love seeing these new parents at our church holding their newborn baby going, oh my gosh, we're going to have the most perfect relationship for the first time in history. And all the parents are going, mm-hmm. Yeah, enjoy your five seconds. Okay, two things today, two points. First, define, and second, defocus. Okay, define and defocus. Zero in on verse 6 and 7 here. The Lord said to Cain. By the way, you got to love this because this is God. You know, you think about God, like who is he? What does he look like? How long is his beard? That sort of thing. And this is God, the Lord, actually interacting with a human being. And you got to kind of get a sense for just the greatness of his being here. Okay? And uh, I'll pull this apart for us. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, question number one. Where is sin? It's right there. Right there. Right there. For you for me, it's always there, 24-7, 365. Where is sin? It's right there. And what is it? It has a desire for you. It wants to consume you. It wants to destroy you. And God says, you must rule over it. Now, the must isn't like you have to do it. You have no choice. It's saying that's your one choice because the other choice is it's going to rule over you. I don't know if you agree with this worldview, if this is your experience of life, but here it is. Sin is right there, and if you don't rule over it, 
You must, because if you don't, the other alternative is it will rule over you. It's sort of A or B, do or die, fight or flight. And I'm not talking about sin in the religious religious, I think, uh, ill-informed sense where it's just about morally being upright. Like, I haven't killed anyone, therefore sin is not something that's relevant to me. That's not what this is. Sin in the true biblical sense rather than the religious sense is that things are broken. Things are just missing the mark. It would include even things like sickness. You know, why are we vulnerable to E. coli? Why are there warnings everywhere? Why are water fountains covered up in plastic bags and signs up in the bathrooms and hand sanitizer? Why? Because it's right there and its desire is to consume you. Creation has fallen apart. It's broken and its desire is to consume each other. There's a self-destructive aspect to creation and existence now. And we are hurting each other on a cellular level. We're hurting each other on an emotional level. We are hurting each other in a psychological, social, anthropological sense. History proves it. The news demonstrates it adequately. It doesn't, it's beautiful in here. But it doesn't take much. It doesn't take nothing for this right here even to turn into chaos. Because Why? Sin is real, and it's right there, right there, right outside where? Your door. And what is it doing? It's crouching. You know what crouching means? It means that it's potential energy. It's coiled, and it's ready to spring. And its desire is to destroy you, to consume you. That's the word here. Desire is for you and wants to eat you. You are its prey. And yet, God says, you must domesticate it. You must be master over it. And this is a reality of the pressure to conform. And you may not acknowledge it, but you are under pressure. You are. You have pressure from within. You have pressure from without. You have pressure on every level. Do you know that you have more viruses and bacteria cells in your body than you do your own cells? It's like two or three times more. It's like crazy more. And their desire is to consume you. Do you know you have all these people around you who don't see you? Do you know you have a society that doesn't know how to love, that doesn't really know how to care? You know the government has its own agendas? Do you know what a scary place this world is? And in the midst of this scary, crazy world, God wants to be God. I want to go into a little uh, lesson here and use a theological phrase called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is the art of God the one and only true living God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, now in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. That God who was crucified, born in Nazareth, died for our sins, raised from the dead on the third day by God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God wanted to reveal himself in this crazy, self-destroying, pressure-filled world. 
How does he do that? Well, he didn't do it all at once. He didn't just show up and go, ta-da, I'm God. I want, you to, I want to show you everything about me. Come on, sit down, sit down. Let me tell you everything. No, that doesn't work. Our brains are so limited, our experience, our, our paradigms, our cultures. And so God first begins to reveal himself to an archaic world. An archaic world is a world that's in survival mode, that's trying to eat itself. That's the eat, strong eat the weak. Survival of the fittest. Into that world, God says, you know what? Actually, actually, I'm the strong. And I am a God. I created you. And so then society, I mean the world, humanity transitions from the archaic stage to what we call the mythical stage. Mythical is when we believe there are gods. And so there are these powers that are beyond us. But we don't really know how it works and what pleases them, what displeases them. And we transfer all of our humanness onto these so-called gods. And so because we're sort of shooting in the dark, we just start making sacrifices. Oh, let's kill a firstborn. Let's kill an animal. Let's kill a bird. Let's kill a sheep. Let's kill whatever. Let's throw it in the volcano. Let's jump... We don't know. Let's cut off a rabbit's foot and rub it. Why not? Maybe. Who knows? This is the mythical stage. And in the midst of a mythical uh, humanity, God reveals himself progressively and says, you know, actually, I am one of the gods. My name is Yahweh, and I'm one of the gods. And then the gods start fighting who is stronger, who is more powerful. And then in the midst of this power-oriented stage of humanity, God, comes, God shows himself and he says, actually, I'm the most powerful of the gods. You know, your friends have that God and your cousins have that God, but I am actually stronger than all of them. You know how we'll show it? Okay, why don't we set up a few altars here and you cut yourself and torture yourself and let's see if your gods will send fire down from heaven and then, uh, let's see, you do that first and then it'll be my turn. Uh, Let me just drench my altar with water and make sure everything is soaking wet and then I'll call upon my God. And then fire comes down from above and consumes the altar, consumes their altars, consumes their prophets. And guess what? Yahweh wins. But there's lots of stories like that in the Old Testament because God is revealing himself. And now he's the best of the gods, the strongest of the gods. He wears the title belt. But he's just one of the teams in the league. Right? And progressing more, He says, you know, actually, not only am I powerful, but I am an ordered God. You don't have to be afraid of me. Here are these rules, A, B, C, D, E, F, all the way. If you do these things, uh, you stand a higher chance of pleasing me because that's who I am. I'm not just a fickle person. I'm not somebody you have to manage or predict. I am knowable. I'm trustable. And so we enter the stage of law and tradition. And so on and so forth until the New Testament. There is God revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And he starts to touch all these things that are unclean and uh, work on the Sabbath. and, And then his followers are eating foods that were previously declared unclean. God says, no, actually, it's not just that I am the most powerful God. It's not just that I am a God who is traditional. I'm the only God and the whole world is mine. 
I want you to have an integrated view of the world. Whatever you do, do unto me. Whether you eat or drink, live or die, do it unto the Lord. I am the true and only God. And so we see a God in the scriptures and in history and in our life who reveals himself over time through events, experiences, cultures, and relationships. This is our God. And in a sentence, what God is saying is, I am holy. This environment, this world that you are born into is a broken world. And all you know is a broken world. A world that's trying to destroy itself and take you down with it. That's what you know. That's what you call life. I want you to know I'm not like that. I'm very, very different. I created the world and it became broken. And now I'm going to redeem the world. I am knowable, I'm trustworthy, I'm powerful. I'm going to die for you. And all of that in a phrase is, I am holy. I'm different. I don't ever cave into the pressures that you're under. Right? And then to us, his people, to the Israelites, he says, you be holy too. Just like me. I want to now nurture a people for myself among all the other people groups so that all the other people groups can come to know me through you. So that all the peoples of this world will be blessed. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. And you will convey my love to the whole world. So I want you to be holy. So holy doesn't mean just morally upright or pious. It doesn't mean that you are boring. It doesn't mean that you're just a serious person or that you go to church or that you pray. It means that you have the ability to be separated out from your environment. Because in general, your environment is broken and fallen. And just as God is able to distinguish himself from the world... Yet love the world. He says, I want you as a people to be holy, just like me, to distinguish yourself from whatever pressure, whatever sin is right outside your door, and I want you to rule over it. I want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. I want you to know who your Lord is. I want you to know who you are and who you're not, what you were meant for, what you were created for. I want you to get in touch with your true self, with your true desires. I want you to be the you that I made in my image. Why should the world define you? I define you. I made you. I am your God. So he gave the Israelites dietary restrictions. He gave them new regulations about how to relate to strangers instead of hating them, be hospitable to them. He gave them guidelines about how to treat the powerless in their society, the orphans and the widows, the least, the last, and the lost. I don't want you to exploit them or ignore them. I want you to love them. He gave them a new relationship to work and rest and sex and money as a way to distinguish for himself a people that will reflect his loving and generous nature. And this is why God says you must rule over it. By our nature, we are vacuous. And the outside will come in. Sin will pounce on us. 
and it will consume us and rule over us. Or, or we worship God. Or we follow God. We trust God. We look to him. We be holy just as he is holy. I want to give you some practical tips on how to be holy in our world. And I hope that was sufficient theological background for it. First, a couple of pictures. Okay. Take a moment. Study the picture. While you're doing that, let me describe it for the audio. There's a brick house, and in the window are three little pigs that are peeking out. And outside of this brick house, there is a wolf giving money to a rather rotund uh, figure that is probably the Kool-Aid man. Now, anybody know what's happening here? Okay, so this is a brick house, and there's three little pigs in it. So that means this is house number three, right? And the first house was made of straw. The second house made of sticks. And the wolf was able to blow both of those houses down. So the pigs ran into a brick house. And the wolf was unable to knock the walls down. So now he's outsourcing this. He's going to hire a subcontractor. And he gets Mr. Kool-Aid. Because Mr. Kool-Aid's specialty is what? If you remember the commercials. He breaks through brick walls. Right, And so we have the wolf paying Mr. Kool-Aid to break through the broken wall so he can get himself some bacon. Okay, that's the picture. Now, I hope this is a picture for you of the reality of pressure out there. The wolf is the sin trying to break in to your world, compromise your integrity as a child of God. Okay, so who are you? Let's see. Uh, One, on the left side, we have a chocolate bar with one perfect square missing. And on the right side, we have a chocolate bar with a rather chaotic bite taken out of the chocolate bar, ignoring the perforated, pre-perforated squares. Okay, which one are you? Okay, know who you are. Okay, the second picture, uh, we have uh, a menu. And the food items are clear on one side with the... Dollar signs fuzzy, and then the other picture we have the food items are fuzzy and the dollar signs are clear. Which one are you? What do you look at more? Okay, last picture. We have two different kinds of pizza one pie half eaten with crusts remaining, another one without the crust. Which one are you? Who are you? Okay, first, in a practical step towards holiness, we follow God's outline with Cain here, and we say, you have to, as a matter of first priority, you have to define yourself. Who are you? What is your identity? What do you value? Okay, where do you end, and where does the world begin? Where does somebody else's wishes and whims begin? And where do your true desires begin? You know, if you violate a value that you have, even if you don't explicitly say what that value is, you begin to feel your heart, actually, heart rate increases. And if you keep violating values, you begin to feel like your life is spinning out of control. And sometimes you have a bad day, and you feel like, my life is terrible. 
chances are you probably violated some of your values. One thing led to another, and you are compromised. The integrity of who you are is compromised. So as a way to define yourself, I'm going to break it down for you really simply, is to confess three things. The first is to ask the question about your feelings. How do you feel? This is the first thing God said to Cain. Why are you angry? What are your feelings? How are you feeling? Your feelings shouldn't lead, but your feelings indicate. They're like the proverbial canary in the mind. It tells you what might be going on. What fumes are you choking on? Okay, you feel resentful. You feel angry. You feel confused. You feel scared. You feel anxious. You feel lost. You feel excited. What are you feeling? That's the first step in defining yourself. Priorities. What's most important to you? Okay, this is the values question. And third is desires. What do you really want? I want to suggest to you that a lot of times we are living under false desires. We think we want something, but we don't. You know, we want things the way an addict wants drugs. You ask an addict, let me help you with your problem. They don't want help with their problem because the drugs aren't their problem. The drugs were their solution. They already had a problem. They were trying to solve it by taking drugs. See, there's a pain that led them to the coping mechanism in the first place. And a lot of us, we're living as if we're trying to just, no, you don't want the drugs. You have a problem. Deeper than the drugs. What is it? Who are you? What's really bothering you? What's really going on? So define yourself in any given situation, whether it's uh, making a decision at a job or you have a parenting moment or you're at a relational crossroads. Ask these three questions and define yourself. Okay, second, defocus others. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 is commentary on this story of Cain and Abel. And John, the writer, says this, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, why did Cain kill his brother? Because his brother was evil? No, because he was evil. He was already not doing well. God said, if you do well, will your face fall? Will not your countenance be lifted up? But you're not regulating yourself. You're not managing your own life well. You're making bad decisions, bad choices. And yet, you kill your brother? Why? It's called blame displacement. We have a strong, impossibly insatiable desire to blame everyone but ourselves. And in the most sincere way, we swear it's her fault. That's what we do. We have to cut the other person down. We have a huge blind spot, and it's called self. We don't want to see how we are contributing to that equation. We don't want to see how we are part of the system, what the conflicts of interests are in the very system that we are an integral part of. If you've said hello to anybody, you're connected. If you live in society, you're connected. 
It's the way we are. And there are always contributions that we are making. We will slay brothers, and we have, and we will. And a lot of it is because our deeds are evil. I know that's not a popular message, but there it is. There it is. So these three categories in defocusing others. What can you take responsibility for? What is your contribution to this situation? What part can I own? So important to first define yourself and then to defocus those we tend to place blame on. I took inventory of myself this week in a kind of painful way. I shed a couple of tears. And here's what I concluded, okay? Sometimes I'm better than Cain, but sometimes I'm worse than Cain. On average, I'm Cain. How are you doing? How's your average? I think we're mostly Cain. I slay people all the time. I just look at their pool of blood going, why did you do that to yourself? But I did it. I'm the one holding the rock. The scriptures tell us that we are all Cain. Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? Why should I care for somebody else? And Abel's blood is crying out from the dirt. What is he crying out for? And the gospel tells us that actually it's crying out for Jesus, the true and only big brother, the only safe and holy person who came into this world, who penetrated this world and said, follow me. I am holy. Be holy just as I am holy. And Jesus, by laying down his life and doing this, he gives me courage to take responsibility for my life. He walks with me through the circumstances, events, and relationships of my life. And he loves me and everybody else more than I could ever love. This is our God, our big brother. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, I submit to you today that you could not be holy if you tried. Jesus alone is holy, and he invites us to take on his yoke, take on his holiness, wear his robe of righteousness, be covered not with the blood of our own sins or the blood of our brothers, but the blood shed for us by him on the cross. Would you pray with me? God, it is our confession this morning that we need you. This world puts so much pressure on us, and it's not just from the world, but it's from ourself, our own fallenness, our brokenness. And left to our own devices, sin is right there. And often we are the ones that pounce and hurt others. But we want to do well. We want our faces and our lives to be lifted up. And we pray that you would do that in the power of the name of your son, Jesus Christ. 
God, we are powerless to do this for ourselves. Do it for us as only you, the Savior, the Lord, the God who revealed himself patiently and steadily to us, do this, ultimately resulting in the revelation of your love on the cross, which we cling to today. We look to you, God. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.